The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludy. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. The old ground. It's a statement that comes from a missionary named C.T. Studd. And it's in reference to the message of the gospel. That when C.T. would walk through the message of the gospel with a man or a woman who had either fallen away and they needed to just be repaired. They, something had once been alive in their life and it had dimmed and been lost. He would take them afresh over the old ground. And for someone who had never ever discovered the grandeur and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ, the term was, well, then we need to take them over the old ground. This is the ancient path. This is the way to salvation. This is the way it has always been. There has always only been one hope. There has always only been one way. And so Jesus Christ is the fleshed out version before all of humanity to realize this is the way. Before Jesus, he was still the way. The Messiah was coming and all our hope was pinned on him. And now we have Jesus. We look at Jesus more in a rearview mirror, historically speaking. But the ancient Jews looked at him in the fore. And they saw him coming. And it was faith in the coming Messiah. And for us, it's the faith in the Messiah that has come. But there's old ground. Hudson is so excited to uh, go visit, what is it, an, uh, an, uh, an abandoned mine up in uh, somewhere in the mountains of Colorado. We talked about it all morning long today but a place where there once was this vitality in this life, but now is desolate. And I think when we talk about old ground, that's not necessarily the picture I want you to have. It's just some desolate old mining town. However, when we look at Christianity today, and I wouldn't blame you if some of you look askance at Christians, if you look askance at even the gospel message, it's just like, you know what, I've heard this before. I wouldn't blame you because it seems to be lacking power today because if it really was that impressive, you'd think it would change people to the level that they would be different than what Christianity is today. If Christianity, the way most of us have experienced it, is the template for what we are to expect out of our God. If he says, this is my people and this is what I want to make them into. And then we look at him. It's not that impressive. It's like, good work, God. Yay. I would like to present the fact that when you go over the old ground, it makes a very different sort of man or woman than what most of us have witnessed today in Christianity. It makes a picture of triumph for all the world to behold. It changes a man into a mighty man, into a man of valor, a man of humility, a man of honor. It changes a woman into a valiant woman, a woman of virtue, a woman of purity, a woman of grace, a woman of elegance. It transforms what is normal and everyday human into something that cannot be described in any other way but to say it's divine. That is the old ground. When Moses walked on the old ground, he didn't know that he was coming there, but after 40 years on the backside of the desert completed, he stepped onto the old ground He didn't realize it, but something was different because there was a bush that he'd walked by many times with his sheep in his life. Just an everyday, ordinary bush, but it was now ablaze with fire. And that's what you witness on the old ground. It is sacred ground. Moses removed his sandals. It was not the type of ground that you tread lightly upon. 
Because on this ground, normal, everyday things are caught aflame. And they stand out because the living God is in their midst. That is not what most of us have witnessed in Christianity, but I would beckon to say that that is what they are supposed to be witnessing in Christianity. And so what we represent here at Ellerslie is not the finished product, but a passion to pursue the finished product, to grow up under the full maturity and stature of what Jesus Christ purchased on that cross, to see Jesus Christ planted squarely in the souls of men and women, to grow us up unto the likeness of the living God, so that when we speak, they hear words that come from heaven and not words that come from earth. When they watch us live, they see us live with a love and a fluidity of grace that is inexplicable except to say, God is here in our midst. This is Christianity, and this is what you find on the old ground. I am going to divide up the old ground into four aspects. Some of us have tasted the old ground in dimension, in other words, to degree. But just like a a recipe for bread, if you have just the water and the flour and you bake it up in an oven, you know, stick it in a pan and stick it in an oven, it's not that it's going to be unhealthy. It's just not going to be very good. It's not going to kill you, and it still may have some nutrient to it. I mean, flour and water, they're important for you. However, it's not the full picture. And so when you truncate these dimensions of the old ground or of the gospel, you end up with something that isn't necessarily harmful, but isn't necessarily robust and grand, and something you want to go out into the countryside and tell all your friends about. When you discover the old ground the way it was meant to be discovered, you cannot keep it to yourself, because you are changed by it. It is actually good news. It isn't like, well, you know, it's probably good that I'm not going to hell type of news. You know, it is good that you're not going to hell, if that's true for you. But did you know that there is so much more to get excited about with life in Jesus Christ? So I'd like to talk about that. The first dimension, the crucified. There's four dimensions to what Jesus Christ did in his 33rd year. First of all, he died. He was crucified. Then three days later, as fact would have it, notice I didn't say as legend would have it, he rose from the dead. The stone was rolled away supernaturally and a man who had died three days earlier came back to life. That's extraordinary. It happened. And then, about 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand of the Father Ten days after that, something known as Pentecost took place. There's four key happenings in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, his, his final culminating work. And it began something we know as the new covenant. Well, that new covenant life, or what we would term the old ground today, is the very same four dimensions that God wants to unveil and unlock within your life. So let's start with the very beginning, the death And this isn't the best entry point. When you're trying to convince people, I'm not a convincer, I'm not a salesman. However, by nature of my position, I'm a fisher of men. In other words, my desire is if you don't know Jesus, is to introduce you to Jesus. It's the whole sole purpose of my existence on planet Earth. 
I could care less if I accomplish anything else. I want my family to know Jesus. I want them to be preserved in the life of Jesus and grow into the full maturity. And anyone that comes into my life, I want them not just to know Jesus, but then grow into the full understanding and full maturity of Jesus Christ. It's a very simple life, I know. It doesn't sound very exciting. It's extraordinary. I wouldn't trade my life for any of your lives. I have the best life on planet Earth, and I would wager on that. It is so good. It's very difficult, and it's so good. So let's talk about the crucified life, because this doesn't seem like the best invitation. The invitation to come and die. It's like, hey, why don't you come to Jesus? Yeah, and by the way, if you're going to come to Jesus, you need to give up your life. Well, Eric, could you hide that piece until they get in the church? Once they get in the church, then you can talk about things like that. But don't don't bring that up as a starting point. This is the starting point. This is the defining element. You know if you need life. And if you don't know, if you think you have life outside of Jesus Christ, a day will come when you will realize you don't. This is the only way to life. It's through the cross. As Winky Prattney, the evangelist in uh, New Zealand once said, that true life begins on the far side of the cross. But the cross, what, what kind of thing is that to point out? That's a symbol of death. Uh-huh. It is. It's death. But not to your, to your future. It's death to you so that you can have a future in Jesus Christ. The Bible actually makes it clear that you have no future if you don't face the cross head on. And you don't allow the cross to do its work in you. Hey, Evie, how are you? Uh, <clears throat> Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Let's read the full version of Romans 6. This isn't all Romans 6. This is a selection out of Romans 6. But I want you to realize that what this is saying is profoundly true And very few of us that even call ourselves Christians have ever comprehended this. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died into sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God." Now, for some of you, that's just a lot of gibberish. Maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, let me see if I can explain. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, God himself, came to this earth and lived the perfect life. He lived the life that we are supposed to live, but we were ill-equipped and unable to live. We can't live it. The standard of God and the standard of God's righteousness is impossible for us to pull off. The equivalent of jumping from New York City to London, England in your own physical effort. Try it. You'll fail. You cannot make the leap. You cannot pull it off. Jesus Christ came. God came and set the pattern. And he did it right. It's what righteousness is. It's the way a man ought to be. And Jesus Christ demonstrated this is how a man ought to be. And he lived it, and he said, follow. 
Now, if you try and follow the life of Jesus and imitate Jesus, I've often said the secret to imitation is not imitation. It's impartation. To imitate, you need something. And you need God to impart it because you can't pull off this life. But there is something that was purchased because there are many of us that have started this Christian walk and we say, I love you, Jesus, and I want to live right for you. I don't want to sin anymore. I've been living so badly, so poorly. I haven't been as I ought to be. And so we say, I'm, I'm in. I want to live right. And it's strange, but we can't. Now, we have Jesus, we have the belief in Jesus, and we know our sins are forgiven. You know, we've come to him, and he's washed us clean, he's wiped us clean of all that junk. And our first step forward in the righteousness and trying to be as we ought to be, we fail. What's wrong here? Romans 6 explains something to us of what is taking place on the cross. When the perfect man died, he died our death. Now, let me emphasize this again. When the perfect man died, he died our death. We all need to die. That, that crucifixion scene, believe it or not, even though it happened 2,000 years ago before you were even born, is your death. And when you know this to be a fact, a fact, not a myth, not a legend, but a fact, and then you reckon it as an accountant would in an accounting ledger, and you say, that is true for me. 2,000 years ago, I died. I am no longer alive to myself. I'm no longer alive to sin. I'm alive to Jesus. Now my strength and energy of soul is going to be gained from a different source. If you reckon that is true in your life, do you know that you become a new person? A new creation? There is something that transforms within you as you identify in that incredible work of Jesus Christ that you don't need to die on your own. You don't need to somehow cut yourself to pieces and kill yourself. You enter into his death. And by reckoning his death, your death, you die. You already died 2,000 years ago. Now you're merely stating it to the heavenlies. I died. And I'm no longer living. But Christ is the one who now lives this life is not mine, it's his. He bought it on that cross with that blood. That cross is the beginning point. And yes, it's not easy because it means the end of you. To identify with that death and to enter into the reality of that death means you go. It means your dreams, your ambitions, your designs, your desires, everything that makes you you, that makes the world turn to you and say, you know, you're something special. All of that is dropped so that the world would look at us and say, God is something special. Look what he did in you. This is about Jesus Christ. And if you want to become a Christian, if you want to find the fullness of Christianity, it cannot be about you anymore. It has to be about him. That's what Christianity is. That's the inception of it. It is giving up ourselves to allow Jesus Christ his rightful place. We have to know it. Knowing that that death is your death. That's what it says in Romans 6. You have to know it. Knowing this, Paul says. Then he says, if you know it, reckon it. I can't tell you how many Christians know it as a trivial answer. They know that that death was there, but they never reckoned it as their own. If I may, I've used this illustration quite a few times, and for some reason I always point back to that back room on the left back there, but if I made a feast back in that back room, and I came in here and I told all of you, I said, I just made a feast for you. And it's a scrumptious one. And I need you to come back in and eat it. 
Okay, now, it's a fact that I've done it. However, it all is hinged on the credibility of my word. Because you're sitting in here, and you really would love a feast. 20 minutes later, I come back in, and you're still sitting here. And I go, why, why are you still sitting here? Didn't you hear me? I said that there is a feast in the back. And you say, well, I haven't smelled it, and I haven't seen it. So therefore, it's not true to me. It's not real to me. And I say, take me at my word. When you stand up and begin to move in the direction of that feast, suddenly your eyes will behold and your senses will take note. We oftentimes hinge our belief and our walk in Christianity based on experience instead of on fact. We follow the revealed word of God as if it is in truth fact. And then our body and our experience follow suit. Our experience lines up. Our senses will taste and see that the Lord is good. But right now, if God says there's a feast back there, you get up and you take it. You reckon it as so. You know it, and then you reckon it. It doesn't do anything to just know it. You know it in order that you can reckon it. Take him at his word. He spoke it. Take it. You may not feel dead, but you reckon it as true, and pretty soon you'll begin to demonstrate to all this earth and the heavenlies that you are indeed dead. Presenting. The third dimension in Romans 6 is saying, okay, you know it? Then reckon it as true. And now, as a result, present your body unto the living God. Let him have it. This is the process of realizing the victory and the triumph of Christianity on earth. Those three things, knowing, reckoning, presenting. In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. There's two things in this verse I want to bring out, and that is that God cannot lie. It is a statement of fact in the word of God. God cannot lie. Now, my, my question for you would be this. Do you believe it? Because your answer to that question gives great illumination into your entire perspective on what the word of God is. Can God lie? Because your experience right now may be barking at you saying, yeah, he sure did lie in this situation. I remember that scripture that Jesus spoke. I mean, I've never seen it come true. I've never seen it fulfilled. Do you believe God lies? Because if you believe God is a liar, then you have no confidence in the entirety of your Christian life. What Paul calls the anchor of our hope is these two immutable truths that God cannot lie, and guess what? He's promised. So therefore, he's promised, and he has, what it says in Scripture, there are exceeding great and precious promises. He has given you promises, and if he has given them to you, and he cannot lie, this is an anchor for your soul. You stand on it, and you're willing to give up your life to stand on it and to defend it. It's Christianity. You have to know these two things. Your God cannot lie. So when he promises, you take him at his word and you begin to walk. He promised, he cannot lie. Two immutable things, says Paul in Hebrews. God promised and he cannot lie. We have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. The ridge pole. Many of the Ellerslie students and some of the, the, the congregation here at Ellerslie are going to recognize a lot of this. This is the old ground. And so if you hear me repeat certain things, this is almost like a summation of 11 weeks of Ellerslie. There's a ridgepole on the very top of a very steep roof. You know, ridgepoles are rather dangerous to try and walk. You remember Anne of Green Gables when Anne got up on uh, Moody's ridgepole? 
And what did she do? Did she break a leg or, you know, just sprain an ankle? I don't remember what it was. It wasn't that drastic. She fell into a bush. But when you're walking along a ridgepole, you know, it's dangerous stuff. And basically, if we look at the ridgepole as the triumphant Christian life, most people would say it doesn't exist. You can't walk that life. Eric, you're misinterpreting Romans 6 and Romans 8 because haven't you read Romans 7? The chapter of defeat. Can't tell you how many Christians hang out in Romans 7 and act as if it's a standalone book in the entire Bible. Oh yeah, and Paul wrote Romans 7 to clarify, no, that we as Christians live in defeat. Romans 7 is written to the Jews. It is written in the context of Romans 6 and Romans 8, which is the most triumphant chapters in the Bible, saying, yes, there is some problem in me, and you have it in you too, Jews. We, we have the law and we esteem the law, but there is nothing inside of us that is enabling us to live out the law. We can't do it. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the truth. So these Christians that are camping in Romans 7 are merely justifying their mediocrity instead of rising up to the call of Christianity as revealed throughout the entirety of the Bible. How dare we slice out the the rest of the Bible of triumph just to explain away our sinfulness. So we have a ridgepole called triumphant Christianity. There's three characters that are going to attempt to walk this ridgepole. The first is known as faith. I'm sorry. The first is known as fact. And fact gets up onto this ridgepole and he walks it. Without wavering, without staggering, without wobble, he walks it without an issue. Why? Well, he's fact. He has nothing to sway him. He isn't infected by the doubts of his age. He walks it without issue. And right behind fact is faith. And faith, as long as he stays focused on fact, walks it. Faith Your assurance, your confidence, your ability to see what is true when you walk after fact or the revealed word of God that God has promised and he cannot lie and you say, that's fact to my soul. You know that you, faith, walks the ridgepole? It does it. It actually is unwavering and will not stagger. But here's the problem. There's a third character and this third character poses us great difficulty. His name is experience. And experience, even before you get up on the roof, is talking. And he's jabbering away saying, you know, I've never seen this before. You know, I, I remember that time back, you know, 10 years ago when you prayed this and, and God says, whatever you pray, you know, what, ask whatsoever you will and it will be done. I prayed for that Ferrari and it didn't, you didn't get it. And it's talking. He's constantly blabbing and he's constantly trying to say, look back at your past. Look at all these other stories around you. Here's the secret to walk in the ridgepole. And let me first give you the secret to failing in your walk of the ridgepole. As long as faith follows true to fact, he walks it. But if he consults experience, not only does experience go tumbling off the ridgepole, but so does faith. You stay rooted to fact no matter what experience testifies. It has no business being a consultant in your life. Now let me give you a secret to having experience corrected and walk the ridgepole. You know that God intends experience to walk the ridgepole? But here's the secret. Experience is on a choke chain. You follow fact, the revealed word of God, and you do not waver and you do not turn around and consult, and you keep walking. You know what happens? Experience begins to catch its balance. And experience begins to demonstrate what fact has been saying all along. 
So crucifixion leads to death to self, dead to the, you're dead to the counsel of the flesh, you're dead to sin, you're dead to accusation, the enemy can no longer hold it over you. You're dead to defeat, you're dead to fear, you're dead to pride. And there's plenty of more things you're dead to, but that's just a little introduction. The risen. So we have the crucified, and then we have the risen. Now, you'll begin to guess that there'll also be the ascended, and then I won't tell you what the last one is yet. Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. This is some extraordinary stuff that most Christians have never tasted of in their life. In other words, many of us have reckoned that what Jesus Christ did was for us, but we never entered into his death. We accepted his forgiveness, but we never entered into his death, and as a result, we're still very alive to sin in our life. The crucifixion is supposed to work its way through every corner, every cell within our existence so that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And this resurrection is no small thing because the very spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead is supposed to dwell in the saints of God. That's, that's some powerful stuff. That's what you call a fire in the midst of a bush. So that we are alive to the spirit, alive to the word of God, alive to hope, alive to love, alive to joy, and alive to triumph. The ascended. So we have the crucified. Three days later, Jesus Christ rises from the dead, which, by the way, has to rank as one of the most extraordinary moments in all of history. When a man who is dead and died publicly is risen from the dead and witnessed by many in Jerusalem. What an extraordinary thing is happening. And God is testifying to the fact that there is victory to be had. It's not just death on the cross. God didn't just die. He died and rose again. You are not called to just die. You are called to enter into the death of Jesus Christ and die to self. Yes, but not just so that you can be dead, but so that you can live. And then 40 days later, this same Lord Jesus Christ ascends. Okay, now what do I mean by ascends? That's sort of a strange word. Jesus actually is raised up and goes to where God is in heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, which is the place of authority, dominion, and power. That's what the right hand symbolizes. Control, dominion, authority, strength. Why in the world? And Jesus actually says, it is better for you that I go. How many of you, if we're going to take a poll amongst all Christians, or even non-Christians, how many of you think Jesus was accurate there in saying that it is better for us that he goes? Come on. You know how much more impacting it could be if Jesus was still here? Oh, Jesus is going to come speak in my church this morning. You know, that would be so much more powerful than me speaking here right now. I mean, uh, Jesus, could you show them the wounds? Uh, yeah, show them your hands, uh-huh. feet, side. Any questions, people? Repent! That would be a powerful demonstration. Instead, it is better for you that I go to be with the Father. Is he serious? He cannot lie. He's telling the truth. We may not see it at first, but I want to introduce you to why. The ascended. You see, when Jesus Christ goes to be with the Father, he is sitting in the position of authority and power to wield that authority and that power on behalf of his saints to accomplish his agenda on earth. So instead of being inside of one body, He 
should be inside of everybody that belongs to him. That is an incredible strategy. But we, the saints of God, must allow him to have our body, a very critical dimension to the plan, which is where you come in. The saints of God are not just the crucified and they're just left dying on the side of the road, just you know, waiting to finally get to heaven. They're the ones that God has removed all obstacle. He has dealt with all issue in their soul. He's dealt with the sin so that he can inhabit them and make them pictures of triumph on planet Earth. And this comes from the ascension. Now you need to realize this ascension might not seem like it has much to do with you. But I want you to realize that at the cross, you enter into Christ. When you enter into Christ and you identify with his death, you become hid in him. And then when he rises from the dead, you're, you're rising as well. And his life is now your life. And when he ascends, you go with him. I know that sounds strange, but it actually says in Scripture that you are seated in heavenly places. I don't know if you feel like you're seated in a heavenly place right now. Any more than you died 2,000 years ago or any more than you rose from the dead on the third day. These things don't seem like they fit your experience. And I want you to begin to reckon them as fact. That what Christ did was for you. And when he ascended to the right hand and you were hid in him, you are in a position of authority and power to deliver the goods of Christianity of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Okay, I'm going to go through these. Now, I'm going to have to walk through each of these separately. So don't cheat and start looking down the list, because they won't make any sense to you. Some of you who have heard me teach know exactly what these things are. But in the cloak, the main thing that is happening here is Jesus Christ has accomplished something. And he's accomplished something on our behalf. And he has a goal. And his goal is a lot bigger. Did I push something, by the way? Oh, okay. His goal is a lot bigger than just to get us into heaven and to wash us clean of our sin. For most of us as Christians, if you talk about God's end game, it's to forgive us of sin. And I would like to propose to you that that is not God's end game. That's his beginning game. The reason he deals with our sin is so that he can bring us into his presence. And the reason he brings us into his presence is so that he can fill, him, fill us with himself. And the reason he fills us with himself is so that he can send us out into this earth and turn it upside down. Okay, now that is his end game. It's to build and establish his kingdom. To transform his saints into his image. To be image bearers. And to get glory for his name. Okay, that's a lot bigger end game. It's a lot more exciting, by the way. And since that's God's end game, I say we align ourselves with it. So the first thing is the cloak. And you'll notice all of these say, in Christ. What we have is we have this mystery of, be- of entering into the life of Christ. And what comes with entering into the life of Christ in his ascended position is extraordinary. Okay, now the first thing we talk about is the cloak. In Isaiah 61, it calls it the robe of righteousness. But this is his righteousness. Remember, he is as he ought to be. He did it right. And so what he does, since we can't do it right, is he cloaks us or he wraps himself about us. And so when we enter into Christ, suddenly we have his righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's his. 
But what this righteousness affords us is the privilege of entering into the holy of holies, the very dwelling place of God. We have no business going there. God is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. And his requirement states that unless we measure up to the perfection of God, we cannot enter into his presence. You see a problem there? That's called bad news. Not good news. That's the bad news. The problem is every single one of us is ostracized. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. It doesn't matter that you've lived a generally good life. You have had self on the throne of your existence and your life is about you even if you could do good deeds. Your life's about you. And as long as self is on the throne of your life, you're living in absolute defiance to the way you ought to be, which is God on the throne of your life. There's a throne. It's a control center. And God says, I need it. The way we ought to be is dead to ourself and alive to God. So if you haven't been dead to yourself and alive to God, you are not as you ought to be, and you cannot enter into the presence of God. It's serious stuff. You know what happens when you can't enter into the presence of God? You're eternally separated from him. And that's where things about gnashing of teeth comes in. Hell, eternal separation and damnation, eternal terror and torment, and it's eternal. It is no small thing, which is why you see Christians move to action to do something about the souls around them. Because we believe God's word to be fact, not fable. So this cloak is our access into the throne room of grace. We have no other way in. And so when we enter into Christ Jesus and we say, I need what you have. I need what you did upon the cross. That is the work that I need. We wrap ourselves in his cloak. And we are, our, our sin is removed. That blood covers it. it is, we are washed clean by his blood. Because that's what this cloak is. It's blood. It's a covering for us, for our messed up state. And it absolves these things. It deals with them. It forgives us. It wipes it clean. And it makes us righteous unto the Father. And so we're invited into the very throne room of grace. It's an extraordinary reality. Most Christians, after they put this cloak on, you know they do what they do? They get into the throne room of grace and they dance around a little. And they're like, this is amazing. And they do a very strange thing. They hang up the cloak. And they say, okay, now it's up to me. I need to live this life the right way from here on out. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did, for getting me into the throne room. I want you to know that your own merit with that cloak off will never get you into the throne room of grace. The only way from this point all the way to the end of your life that you could ever get into the throne room of grace is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Most Christians, out of a, a, a real desire and a love to live holy and right before God, to say, I'm not going to live in perfect purity. I'm not going to lust anymore. I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to be proud. I'm not going to do any of these things because I love you, Jesus. They'll fail the next day. You need that cloak to get in. And I want to tell you why you need to keep the cloak on. You keep that cloak on for the rest of your life. Don't allow the enemy to, to tell you anything different. That cloak is the only way into the throne room of grace. And when you get, as Pilgrim's Progress says, to the celestial city in the end, to heaven's gates, the only way into heaven is the merit of Jesus Christ. It is not going to be your own merit, so keep the cloak on. However, underneath that cloak is a very real work of transformation that will be taking place. But that transformation takes place in the throne room of grace, in his presence. So therefore, put the cloak on. Come into his throne room and stay in his throne room by his grace, by his merit. You stay there to allow him to begin to work on you underneath that cloak. 
in the plane. Remember how I said it's impossible for you to jump from New York City to London, England? It's impossible. Yet it's the requirement. It's impossible. The requirement is impossible, and God even says it. You have to live this way. You need to perform real righteousness. You can't. So here's the secret. There is a plane, and as long as you're outside the plane, you are under the law of gravity. But there is a higher law to gravity. And that's the reason, by the way, the law of gravity is the reason why you can't make that jump. And there's a law, in effect, that prohibits you from meeting the righteous requirements of the law, and that's called the law of sin and death. It's like the law of gravity. It keeps you down. It prohibits you from actually being able to make the supernatural leap. But there is a law that trumps the law of gravity, and it's called the law of aerodynamics. And if you enter into that plane, and you allow that plane to do the work that you can't, a very real triumph will take place, and a very real trumping of the law known as gravity will take place, and you'll witness it. If halfway over the uh, Atlantic Ocean you get cocky, and you say, you know what? I think I can do this now, and you jump out of that plane, guess what? The law of gravity is still in effect. The only way to escape the effects of the law of sin and death in your life is to enter into Jesus Christ and then to remain in Jesus Christ. You put on that cloak, you stay in that cloak. You get in that plane, you stay in that plane. And you'll find out very quickly, the moment you stick your head out of that plane, that the law of gravity is very much in effect. So what should you do? Stay in the plane. A lot of us climb around on the plane. And we know all about the plane. We can tell you what it's made of, what materials it is, what kind of wheels it has. And we say, oh, a great plane. When that plane takes off and starts flying, if you're on the outside of that plane, how well are you doing? You're like, sliding down the side of it. It doesn't look too pretty. Most of us, that's our Christianity. We're hanging around on the outside of the plane. And every time it takes off, we fall to the ground and we can't figure out what the problem is. We're on the outside of Christ looking in as opposed to entering into Christ. To enter into Christ, you enter in through the cross. The reason that is so unappealing to us is because we want to still maintain our life. We want to maintain control. But to get into that plane, you have to give up your life as you now know it. And you will find victory and triumph. Just because you know about the plane, you can look at it through the wall, you know, through the hangar. You can say, I see that plane. I love that plane. It means nothing when you get to heaven. If you say, I love that plane. You had to be inside the plane to see the law of sin and death trumped by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. In the armory, the reason you enter into that cloak is to get in to the throne room of grace, which we could call the armory. I love this, by the way. Okay, if you can't tell, I get excited about this type of stuff. I'm really not a mean person, even though when I talk, I get really, I'm a very nice guy. The reason you put on this, throne, on this cloak is to get into the throne room of grace, which we could also term the armory of God. It's the place where he arms you for battle. Okay, you come in, in your cloak, the only way in is the blood of Jesus. And then you come in to Christ. And when you're in Christ, you begin to realize that there's exceeding great and precious promises in Jesus Christ. There is equipment for the battle. As it says, the weapons of our warfare are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. So in this throne room is a treasure chest of grace. Everything you could ever dream of and imagine that you need for life and godliness. Everything you need for living this life is made available to you in the throne room of grace. 
So how do you stay in there? You stay in the cloak. You stay in Christ. You remain in the plane. And the law of gravity, the law of sin and death will no longer hamper you and hinder you from being in God's presence. And then you begin to partake. You begin to put your breastplate on. Hold the sword, the helmet, the belt, the shoes. He will clothe you and make you strong for battle. That's what he does in the armory. In the armor. When you have entered into the armory, it makes sense that you would then clothe yourself. Not just look at the nice stuff. You know how many Christians I have met that actually know about the armor of God, the strength and the fortification of God, but answer trivia questions about it as opposed to clothe themselves in it. It's like knowing about the cross and not taking its benefit for yourself. Knowing about the resurrection and not taking its benefit. Knowing about the ascension and not taking its benefit. It doesn't make a lot of sense. How, have you ever heard about frazzled ice cream? Frazzled ice cream is the most extraordinary ice cream ever. When it goes into your mouth, by the way, it's made up. But when it goes into your mouth, it causes a tingling sensation. It is so scrumptious that literally you, you nearly lose consciousness. It is so extraordinarily good. And even as it goes down your esophagus, into your digestive tract, it does medicative type of work. It does healing work over your... So it's not just tastes good, but it's good for you. That's a rare combination. And it transforms your entire health as it enters into your belly. This is great stuff. And so what they've done is they have groups that talk about frazzled ice cream all the time. And they, they dissect it and break down its ingredients, memorize the ingredients lists. They sing songs of worship to frazzled ice cream and its many benefits. They have support groups that are totally built around frazzled ice cream. And no one ever takes out a spoon, dips it into the frazzled ice cream and sticks it in their mouth. Who cares if you know all about the benefits if you know all about the ingredients, but you've never tasted it for yourself. The purpose of Jesus Christ is to be had, is to be gained. You're supposed to be in him. And there's a reason, so that he can be in you. The reason you cloak yourself in Christ and the reason you enter into that plane, the reason you come in to Christ and find that firm and established bearing in Christ Jesus is so that you, he can enter into you. In the boots of iron and brass, the shoes of God himself, they are boots of all-compassing authority. He has gained a position. He defeated all the powers of earth and hell. And there is nothing that can stand against your life moving forward. Nothing that can literally eat and rot away your soul anymore. There is a barricade about your soul. I've used this illustration many times. It's a good one. Have you ever seen one of those old fossils? You know, it's like, uh, almost like uh, resin, uh, uh, this amber resin that is surrounding some little fossil, and the fossil's like caught in there. You take out a sledgehammer, and you hit that piece of resin, and it bounces around the room. What happened to the fossil inside? Untouched, unmoved. That's Christianity. This world will take out its biggest hammer and it will hit your life and you will be unmoved. Anyone interested in this? This is good stuff. This is the old ground. This is triumphant Christianity that for whatever reason has gone missing in our day. And I say, let's get it back. We have the crucified, we have the risen, we have the ascended, and then we have the sent. We are not just crucified so that we can enter into heaven as dead men. We are risen so that we can enter into heaven alive. 
And then we are hid in Christ and we are ascended and we sit at the right hand of the Father. In Jesus Christ, we have authority when we speak in his name and his authority. We say what is vested in him and what he accomplished may be accomplished in me, may be accomplished in those around me. And there's authority in a position. Jesus Christ ascended so that he could send forth something. That something is very critical to your life. It is known as his very life, the spirit of almighty God. He ascended so that he could send. You were sent. Christians are sent ones. We have a job to do, not to just fritter our life away until we get to heaven. There's a job to do. There's a kingdom to be established. Everything he did on that cross has been accomplished, but it is accomplished in heaven. And it is the job of the saints to pray and to wrestle, to see the realities of the purchase of the cross brought to earth in every single individual on planet earth. Our goal is to see the church brought triumphant. We are sent. As my Father has sent me, even so send I you. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember we said that we are to be in Christ in Christ, all these things, in the plane, in the cloak. We're supposed to be in the throne room where he is. We're supposed to be in him. We are supposed to be in him so that he can get in us. That's the end game. The end game of Christianity is that we would be made right to enter into his presence. And then we would enter fully into his life and be equipped and armed for battle. And then instead of just sending us out to a losing battle and say, go, a sheep among wolves, go, lose. He says, hold it. There's one more thing. Before you go out there and get eaten alive, I'm going to go with you. But I'm going to go inside of you. So your hands will become my hands. Your feet will become my feet. Your heart will become my heart. Your mind will become my mind. Your mouth will become my mouth. Your eyes will become my eyes. And we're going to win this thing. And even though you will be devoured by this world, my sheep will defy all the powers of earth and hell and they will prove victorious. God never has lost a battle in all of world history. And if you allow your God to infill your life and to take it over and to make you his vessel, you will be a victorious Christian. As it says in Romans 8, more than a conqueror. Not just Napoleon, not just Alexander the Great in the spiritual realm, more than that. We will be a mighty conqueror for the purposes of Jesus Christ. Don't measure it based on your experience. Don't measure it based on what Christianity you've seen out there in this world. Yes, it does not look that impressive. So the things I'm saying may sound way too epic. But I'm saying that's the fact of Scripture. Without wax, without any increase, without any exaggeration. In fact, if anything, I'm falling far short of enunciating it to the level that it is. It's big. It's good. And this is the old ground. This is the old ground that moved men like C.T. Studd. This is the old ground that moved women like Amy Carmichael. This is the old ground that moved men like Hudson Taylor to sell all and move to China. This is the old ground that moved men like Reese Howells to give it all up and to go to Africa. This is the old ground that changed mere men and women into mighty pictures of triumph on planet Earth. And if you're interested, remove the soul's on your, remove the shoes from off the soles of your feet and bend a knee and stare straight into that burning flame of fire in the bush and say, God, whatever is in that bush, I need in me. Because that's what Christianity is about. 
It is not about staring at a fire. It is about partaking of the fire. You can read scripture all you want and you can hear about the fire, but you need to go after the fire. And you need to make sure that you enter into that fire and that fire enters into you. It's the full course, not just flour and water stuck in a bread pan. We're not looking for just a small amount of what the cross purchased. Let us fear lest we fall short of the promise being left us. Let us fear, it says in Hebrews 4. Let us fear lest we fall short of the promise. God has given us so much upon that cross. May we go after every last inch of it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, lambs with faces of lions. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is only one hope for the clear picture of Jesus Christ to be brought to this world. There's only one way. Because your wit, your resolve, your willpower, your determination will not do it. You could be the best human example of what Christ was. The best mimic. And it would fall far short. As Paul says, it would be as filthy rags. Our righteousness is nothing. And Paul had a pretty good righteousness of his own. And he says it's his filthy rags. It's a dung heap. It's nothing. We need Christ in us, and that's the hope of God being seen again. I'm sick and tired of a Christianity that is built on human muscle. I want to see a Christianity built on God muscle, God power and God enablement. I'm sick and tired of the wheeze and the fluff and the little twinkling of God down here on earth. I want to see the mighty fire come down from heaven and change planet earth to show forth the power of the risen Lord. That's the way it's always been. That's what the old ground testifies, and I say we return to it full force. Christ in you, lambs with faces of lions. You are called as lambs. You are called as lambs, and the secret of a lamb is to remain at the ankle of the shepherd. Don't go wandering off because you're a lamb. And as a lamb, you have no power in and of yourself. You have no wit. You have no intelligence. Just take it as fact. I know you want to buck up against it. Say, no, I'm actually very smart. Not in the spiritual matters, you aren't. You stay next to the ankle of your shepherd. You keep your eye trained on his. Wherever he's looking, you look. Wherever he goes, you go, and you'll be secure. And when those wolves come after you, guess what? They can't touch you. Why? Because they can't touch him. And you can stand there and say, in the name of my shepherd, out of here. And they have to heed and obey a lamb. That is the ultimate mockery of hell right there. It's God's great humorous plan is that he would mock all the powers of earth and hell with little lambs. Because he gives these little woolly lambs faces of lions. That they can go out and defeat all the powers of hell. And even when they die, they die victoriously. Christ in you, the rack of glory. Well, that flows out of last week's message on the Irish elk. An animal that literally at the top of the elk's head was 10 feet in height, and its rack that then protruded out of the sides of its head was 12 feet in width, and it went another 5 feet into the air. We're talking 14 to 15 feet high. A rack of antlers on top of an elk. That's what fossil record indicates. It's extraordinary. These were all over Europe and Asia, but they're no more. Well, you could say a lot of similarities between that and Christianity. Because you read the word of God and guess what? There's a rack of antlers that is 12 feet wide and 15 feet in the air. And most of us have to reckon with it and wrestle and go, do we believe the fossil record? Do we believe the word of God on this point? I do! And I believe that God wants to return such a rack of glory to our generation. 
I know that's a preposterous thought, but that's if you weigh it with experience and not with fact. God is simply looking for men and women who believe. Ellerslie, we may be mocked here because we actually believe this. It's not just me. I'm just the voice of it right now. We believe it. And we believe that God wants to build Irish elk in this generation. Men and women that when this world encounters them, it's something to behold. Not because they're seeing humans. They're seeing Jesus in and through the skin, in and through the words, in and through the actions and attitudes of mere men and women. They're men and women turned into something extraordinary. That's what we believe God wants to do. That's what we believe the church is called to, to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. There's a job to do on this earth, but it's going to take a lot more than human willpower and resolve to do it. There's 148 million orphans, 27 million human slaves. There's 150,000 people estimated to be dying daily without the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Those odds stacked against your little lamb-like life should weigh you down and pin you to the ground with no hope. But what I want you to do is grab a hold of this truth that is found on the old ground. And even though you're pinned down by all those statistics, you push them back up and you allow a rack of antlers to begin to protrude out of your forehead and begin to demonstrate that it's not by your strength that it will be done. It's not by the strength of the might of the church of Jesus Christ. It's by his spirit that it will be accomplished in this generation. And we are merely the vessels. So get into that cloak and come into the throne room of grace and dress yourself in all the armor of God. And as you're walking out, hesitate and say, well, there's one more thing. Jesus, fill me. Fill me with your lion's roar, with your very presence. Make me a burning bush in this generation. Fill me with fire so that this world will be turned on its head. Men and women are needed today. Not men and women of brawn, willpower, wit, wisdom. We're not just looking for the brightest and the best from Harvard. We're looking for those that are willing to be bent by the Spirit of God who fear and tremble before the word of God, who do not think that their opinion is higher than God's, men and women who bow their knee readily, who are willing to be crucified naked before a mocking crowd, and they think not of themselves and their own reputation. That's who God is looking for. That says that the way is narrow and few are they who find it, because few are they who want to find it. Few are they who want to give up their life to walk this narrow way. What Ellerslie students represent, and this is a day of celebrating it, we have 55 students that have gone through this program this summer that have all said, I'm in. That should get those of you out there very excited that stopped believing in Irish elk a long time ago. Because we have something taking place on earth, and it's not just happening here. I guarantee you if it's happening here, it's happening in other places all over the earth. God is stirring. And right now, there's like this little rack It's not very impressive, maybe. It's a little rack of of antlers. You know, maybe two feet in width. It's not 12, but it's there. And it's very real. And as you encounter these students, especially you family members that are around them this weekend, maybe for the first time in 11 weeks, you'll begin to notice something that's different. We call it the swagger of the freshly anointed. There's a strength. There's a confidence. You're not put down easily. You believe the fact and not the experience. 
And so when you come to these students, if you're the family and friends, and you say, but what about this? I mean, remember when this happened to you 10 years ago? Or what about this? Remember when this happened to Aunt Bertha? All I care about is the fact. That's what they're trained for. You focus on fact, not experience. You do not turn around and consult what happened in the past. You focus on what Jesus Christ has revealed, and pretty soon, all your experiences will line up. That's the principle of the gospel, and that's what God assures us of. There's two things, two immutable truths that are as a sure and steadfast anchor to each of your souls. Your God has promised you, and he cannot lie. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.